If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to continue our study, but today we're not going to advance from where we were you know, two weeks ago when we left off. We're going to actually go back and zoom in on a few verses that we might better understand what is taking place in the heart of David. And I love David's heart. I love its gook and grime because it helps me to understand if this is true of David, it can be true of me. I also love the purity of his trust at times. Uh, It's a great moment for us to zoom in and see David wrestling with the gospel truths in an extremely personal way. So join me, if you will, in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 19. We're going to begin in verse 3 and go through verse 6. And this is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you would be pleased. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today joyfully celebrating you, the work of your Son, the glory of your mercies. We also come conflicted, conflicted about our hearts and our lives Choices we made years ago, choices we are still making today, choices we feel might dominate the way we see and understand the entire world around us and the moments we live inside it. Father, come in your mercy. Come with great grace today. Expose our shame and cover it with the blood of Christ. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. I said two weeks ago that David's compounded guilt from his affair with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite to cover it up is driving his compounded guilt. I stand by that statement in the fullness of its force and truth, but I think it's incomplete. As I left church two weeks ago and as I've been thinking and praying about today and and moving forward in 2 Samuel, 
I think there's something else here that I left untouched. And that is not just David's guilt driving his uh, grief, but also David's shame. David's shame is clouding and covering his response to the good news of Absalom's death. Shame is not a word that we let take place in our public discourse very often. In fact, I think shame is a word and an idea and a reality that goes largely unexplored because of its weight, its complexity, and because you don't know how others around you deal with their shame. So it alienates us. It drives us to be silent about something that has far more power than we normally imagine. So I want to talk about shame a little bit, and then I want to see it in David's life in this moment. So let's agree about a few things about shame. First, shame can often lead to silence. There are things that we know we should say that we don't say. Sometimes because of our shame, we don't speak. And sometimes because we didn't speak, we are ashamed. That's a difficult knot to untie. It's a spiral that continues upon itself. Silence begetting shame begetting silence. That silence of shame replicating itself, adding layers of shame upon layers of shame. Silence and shame are often intertwined. But so too is anger. This might be more genderly true for men than women. I'm not a woman. I don't know. But I am a pastor. And I watch. And I hopefully engage. But most of the time, my experience, disproportionate anger is a reaction of shame. Often in marriage, and anybody who's been married for a little while can tell you that you will be arguing about something that has not been spoken, whether it's something deeper, more personal, or this is the simple trigger that lets the pressure of something else out. And when done really poorly, it leads to divorce and alienation. When done really well, it still creates damage in the relationships. Often shame manifests as anger because we are ashamed. And then again, it compounds. I yelled at Savannah two days ago. 
because she did not put the trash away correctly. True? Did you make an innocent mistake? Was I disproportionately frustrated with you? Was that a reflection of what you had done or a reflection of what I was thinking? Trick question, she said. (laughs) I freely confess, I joyfully declare the fault was entirely mine. And it was born out of my shame and frustration. Silence, anger, the compulsion to escape is another manifestation of shame. In the generation that follows mine, you will see a generation who are desperate to escape. Escape into the false promises of sex and drugs. A desire to escape into the very conventional truth and joy of seeing things you've never seen before. Been on exotic trips, right? There's negative sides to how we express this. But also taking a great vacation. Going to Hawaii. Seeing the Caribbean. Spending time in Alaska or Norway. Some of that is a desperate desire to escape the life you don't want to live right now. Sometimes it's a reward. Don't hear me say vacations are all bad. I hope to take some nice ones in the near future. But I think this addiction to being numb, this addiction to finding something that will cover or intervene to take away the pain of existing. Fourth one, and this could be a much longer list, I will spare you with but one more. I think that we have a relationship with chaotic action as a means to justify, falsely, our shame. We begin to try and weave narratives and conspiracies that release us from the burden and weight of what we have done. We sometimes seek to limit and lessen the brutality of the shame we still feel. Seeking to convince ourselves, probably even more than others, but the hurried action is for others, that they will justify your decision and declare to you the untruth that there's nothing there you should be ashamed of. Do you understand the cultural moment we live in right now? In 2023, Western culture, the most probable thing you will experience in any public forum is the passing of lies in agreement. You are what you aren't. It wasn't what it was. You didn't do anything wrong 
there is an awareness in this cultural moment that things are not as they should be. But the solution is deception to them. The solution is to wrap these things that you know in the clothing and embrace of things that are not true. They're not real. And we can respond in silence and anger or we can just look the other way, compounding our own shame. How many in this room feel like you have spoken truth every time it was warranted? No hands to raise? How many of you feel like you have stood strong in moments where many others grow weak? No hands? Mine aren't up either. When we see this moment in David's life and we begin to really take seriously the degree and weight of shame that he's wrapped in, it will help us understand the need that Joab feels to shake David out of his moment, but also the inadequacies of Joab's solution to the problem of David's shame. David knows that the devastating murder and violence, this sword that is rolling through his family has an origin point. God told him, 2 Samuel 12, verse 11, Behold, I will raise up trouble against you out of your own house. This is the consequence of God's judgment on David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite rolling through his family, steam shoveling across, digging up all the good that is there. Joab comes to David with the news of victory. And you're not supposed to lose the kingdom when you win the battle. But Joab is so afraid that David's shame will undo the work that God had just done in restoring him to the throne of Israel. But David cannot look at Absalom and see Absalom. He can only see his own sin and the devastation of Absalom's failures should be understood as Absalom's failures. But David wants mercy for Absalom Gotta hear me very clearly here. David wants mercy for Absalom because he's not thoroughly convinced in this moment 
that he himself is a child of mercy. He's not sure in this moment that God's grace, God's goodness, and the coming work of the true son of David will be enough to cover his shame. Joab's not going to be capable of giving David the fullness of the gospel. But we, we know, we have, we can explore the fullness of what it means to be free from sin. The fullness of what it means that the fall of Adam is not greater than the victory of Jesus Christ. Sin creates a threefold problem. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden as they consider all of the elements of God's great and glorious creation chose. Adam chose to trust the created being more than the creator being. And it creates a threefold problem of sin. The first is the one we Reformed people talk about the most. Guilt and courtrooms. Second, the one we talk about least, alienation. Alienation. Adam and Eve alienated from each other. As they hide from one another. Alienation from God. As they seek to cover. Literally the scripture says they try to cover their shame. With fig leaves. They leave the garden with animal skins. Which one is a better covering? The animal skins are a lot more durable than a dried leaf. Yes? But even those animal skins reveal the need for the shedding of blood to cover shame. Threefold problem of sin, guilt, alienation, and damage. Something real is lost. Something real is cracked and broken, is perverted and diminished. Something real is still present, but not right. Guilt, alienation, damage. Are you with me? We love to talk about justification, the mighty doctrine recovered in the time of the Reformation. Make no mistake, I agree with Luther. When the doctrine of justification is taught rightly, all good things flourish. And in the perversion of that doctrine, almost no good things flourish. Howard Griffith once said, Every time the Bible explains why Jesus was incarnated, it has sin in view. 
every time it has sin in view. He's right. We see this in Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It's not justifies the godly. It's not justifies the sincere. It's justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, here he quotes the psalm, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Guilt. Lawless deeds forgiven. And whose sins are covered whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you live on Tuesday mornings or Saturday nights in the fullness of dwelling in the state of forgiveness? Not the moment of forgiveness, not the remembrance of a forgiveness, but the state of being. It is the land that Christians reside in. We live in grace because of the life and death and resurrection of David's real eternal son, Jesus Christ. Our guilt dealt with in the courtroom of heaven, atoned in righteous blood as payment for the mountain of sins we have committed and the state of sin we used to dwell in. It's not just the collection of sins. It's the power of sin. More on that in a moment. We can see this truth come to life a little bit later in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No hallelujah coming for that? Take a breath. Breathe this in. I'll begin again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained by faith and been brought in access by faith into the grace in which we, what? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When we see the doctrine of justification in Scripture, think courtroom and gavel and verdict. Verdict. The finality of our guilt dealt with. Second, 
Not only is there a problem of guilt, there's also a problem of alienation. We see in the great doctrine of adoption, one of the least discussed glorious truths in Scripture. Adoption is familial. It's familial. But in that adoption, we receive freedom from alienation and orphaned thinking. How many of you wake up remembering that you have a Father in heaven who gives what you need? Don't you think sort of pragmatically about your life? If I don't do it, ain't nobody going to do it. If I don't take care of number one, most of us live as orphaned. Even when we give speech about being adopted as a son of God in Christ. You belong in the family of God. You've been brought in through adoption to be a full-fledged member of the family of God. And what that means then, if you're not a secondary citizen, if you're not a secondary member, if you're a full heir, then that means you have access and rights to the bounty of the family. The blessings of that bounty are yours. Not because of your niftiness, not because of your skill, not because of your effort, not because you raised your hand, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. How and why do you have access into the treasure troves, the warehouses of God's blessings stored in the heavenly realms? Is it not by Christ alone? Is our only hope not his life and his death and his resurrection? He referred to that as the hour of his glorification. And kids, I know you can get this, right? Kids, if you entrust yourself to Jesus, whatever benefits are his are conveyed to you as well because you're united to him. Can't you get that? If your parents have wealth, do you not share in the bounties and glories of that wealth? And if that's true, in the low plane of finances, how much more is that true in the high glories of heaven? Romans 8, verses 14 through 17, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That word there doesn't have a gender distinction. It's fine to say, for all who are led by the Spirit, capitalized, Holy Spirit of God, are children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit himself bears with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be what? What is this suffering of which Paul speaks? Is this back pain like Harold and I deal with? It's the annihilation of pride. It's the extrication of pride. If you are willing to suffer the embarrassment of God's death for your benefit, then you are united into the glories of what that death accomplished. He used to ask as an icebreaker to college kids, he used to minister to college kids, and one of my favorite icebreakers would be to ask the question, what's your most embarrassing moment? It's amazing, almost all the people 40 and over went, don't look at me. Are you looking at me? And lots of the kids go, huh, I wonder. And anybody who's heard me before knows my answer. I have two. One, not appropriate for the pulpit. Two, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is my most embarrassing moment. Christ, bloody and grieved in physical pain and spiritual assault, in all the weariness of a body that's about to exhale its final breath. I needed that. You want to talk about my shame? Nothing I have done singularly, no single moment that I've ever lived is more embarrassing than the totality of my life, than the totality of my secret thoughts, my unrepented desires. I have sin I don't even know about. <laughs> Some of you do. <laughs> Feel free to tell me discreetly later, not today. I'll be ashamed later today on my own. God looks at you and says, mine. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How many times does he say that to broken and weary women? How many times does he say, what's easier? For me to heal your body or to say your sins are forgiven? Well, in order that you might understand I have the power of the latter, I will do the former. Pick up your mat and walk out of here. And they do. He looks at you and says, mine. And before the foundations of the world, you were always going to be chosen 
into his family. And he did not some, but all of the work necessary to bring about that glorious adoption. But there's a third problem. Not just guilt, not just alienation, but also damage. And this is where our silent words echo in our minds. Why am I still battling this sin? Why do I still indulge this thing that I know for years and years and years has never given me what it promised? Or it gave it in a way that could never last. And what's our response to that? We cover up. Not in the righteous blood of Christ. We cover up in shame. We're reaching for fig leaves to play pretend with the people around us. Yes? This is where our silence comes from most. This is where our anger, disproportionate anger, is usually derived. We do not believe in definitive sanctification. John Murray is the one who coins that term, and it's brilliant and necessary to be recaptured by the Christian church today. Listen to the promise and the truth that you were born in the nature of Adam, which was fallen. And that at the alpha point of your faith, you get a new master who breaks the chains of your slavery to sin and frees you to the life of righteousness. Listen to this glorious doctrine. Romans 6, 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign where? To make you obey what? Do not present your members, that's the parts of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been what? Do you believe that's true? That you have been brought from death to life? Or have you been brought from death to almost alive? Have you been brought from death to sometimes alive? Or do you have a new master? Is there a new sheriff in town? Is there a new enabling power in your life to live and love as you could not do before? Your members are presented to God as instruments for righteousness, holiness. For sin will have, say that word. Say it again. Please, one more time, from my heart. No, 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 no. 
For sin will have no dominion over you. How many times do you wake up in the hour or moment of temptation believing in the deepest parts of who you are that you don't have power to fight? That you don't have the strength to endure. That you can't carry this weight of sin and grief and sorrow and the temptation is too much. Most of us, in the honestest part of our hearts, in the most tender cracks in the darkness of the deepest deepest closets in our lives can't say that word no from here we can hope it a little bit from here i know that this is true run in christ You don't just have the solution for sins. In the gospel that we proclaim, you do not just have eternal adjudication where you pass from death to life later. Think about Martha in the hour of the resurrection of Lazarus. It hasn't happened yet. But Martha hears Jesus ask the question, do you believe that your brother will rise again? What does she say? I believe, yes, later. Which is awesome. She's so close, right? Yes, he has the power. Yes, he has the authority. Yes, he's done all that will be necessary. He is in that moment forging the trail upon which all sinners will walk to glory. But in the deepest parts of who she is, in the overwhelming grief of the death of her brother, I know you can do it later. But why did you let this happen is the question inside her. She's crying. She's trying to believe. She has no idea what the real power, what the real wisdom and glory and mercy of God is about to produce both in that hour and at the last hour. You have a new master, and that master is at work in your life. This is the doctrine of sanctification. Most of the time, we think of it in its progressive elements. We are becoming better. We are trusting more, which is awesome but it's anchored in and inseparable from that alpha point of faith, that new birth, born not from the man of dirt, but from the son of heaven, 
We see this later on in the same chapter, Romans 6, 17 through 19. Paul says, and he means it, y'all, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from where? From the heart, from the inside. This is not you forcing outward clone-like obedience. But the real thing, from the inner place, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of what? Oh, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. I love this line. Paul's basically saying you're not as smart as I am, so I'm going to say it in a way you can understand. And I go, I agree. I'm not as smart as you are, Paul. Go for it. God's not upset with our finitude. He doesn't look at our finite minds, our finite lives, and say, man, I wish that was different. He made us with finitude. He will restore us forever, and we will still have finitude. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to what? Sin caused guilt. It caused alienation. And it wreaked revocable damage. David in this moment can't see past his shame. I did this. And I did that. And I opened something worse than Pandora's box. And I unleashed it on the people I'm charged to protect. I subjected the people that I love to this sword that keeps rolling through my family, killing child after child after child. Absalom. My young Absalom, he sees his son's sin and he responds in silent, overcome grief. Here's what touched me most as I studied this. David sees his sin. He sees Absalom's sin. He knows that he was part of the cause. He's unwilling to say Absalom is part of the cause. But the consequence of sin is not the same as the guilt of sin which is also not the same as the shame of sin. 
what do we do with our shame? That's a question that paralyzes lots of Christians. Because we're supposed to think, no more problem. Right? No more problem. How many people over the age of 50 in this room have moments you still contemplate? Because you know what you did or wanted or thought had devastating consequence. We call those regrets, yes? If I had, then they wouldn't. If I hadn't, then they could. Many kids struggle to believe that my parents see my sin and want to have patience with me and I don't deserve that. What do you do with your shame? Where does it go? When God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, we get a glimpse of the sacrifice that it will take to truly cover our sin and shame. God covers them with more lasting, protective, quote, garments of skin, clothes that he made from animals that had to die so that they could live. But we know that ultimately our sin and shame are nailed to the cross. For we see that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Scripture says shame. Scorning its shame that we by faith are now to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. In this way, with a life grounded in the gospel of God's grace, we are able to continually grow out of our shame and into the new clothes of Christ's righteousness. The new clothes, the better clothes, the eternal garments of righteous glory. And they cover us now. You guys see sin as clothing you cannot run out of as you wear it. But that's not true anymore. You wanna know what the gospel says? The gospel says you're wearing garments of righteousness that you cannot run away from, that you cannot out endure because they didn't come from us, they're not ours by building their ours by transaction. The life of Christ offers to us the clothing of eternal life. Your shame has been dealt with, is being dealt with, and one day will be so wiped from you that you will be cleansed of it forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are good and wise beyond our understanding. We are grateful that you have given us a greater gospel than Joab has. Father, we thank you that we can face our shame, declare our failures boldly and clearly 
that we do not need to be anesthetized. We need to be repented. Father, give us repentance. Grant us repentance that we might trust what is true. Not what might be true, but what is true. That you have gaveled our guilt away. That you have brought us in as adopted sons and daughters in Christ with all the rights and privileges. And that you have dealt with the restoration required as you renovate us truly, though often more slowly than we desire. May we trust your renewing graces. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people agree.